Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Mia, and Steven. And we're going to be talking about the 1979 film Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. But before we go on, we do have a special announcement we need to make. Laura is taking a break from the podcast. We all appreciate what she brings to our discussions, and we are definitely going to miss her while she's gone. In the meantime, we have decided to hold off on discussing Get Out, which was going to be featured in our next episode. That was Laura's pick for a recent film that she thought might deserve to be included in Sight and Sound's top 10, but we would rather wait and discuss it with her when she's back since it was her pick. Okay, so now um, let's do what we do every time and hear from everyone about one movie they've watched recently that they want to talk about here. Steven, what about you? I actually watched Hearts of Darkness, which was the 1991 documentary about Apocalypse Now, um, just because the movie was so affecting to me. I, I kind of wanted to see what the making of the movie was about. Um, so I decided I would check that out. And it was really, really interesting. Actually, I actually want to watch that again just to get more nuances with it. But yeah, it was it was kind of just the technical way that the movie worked. I was really curious as to how they actually accomplished that. So that was part of the reason why I wanted to watch it. But yeah, I, I would recommend watching that as well. Yeah, I, I can't remember that documentary very well, but I watched it, I think, like in high school or something on VHS. I got it from Blockbuster because I'd seen Apocalypse Now and the same thing. I was like, I want to know more about this. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I would definitely be down to watch it again. Where did you find it? I'm just curious. Um, they have it on YouTube. Oh, okay. Good to know. So, Alicia, what about you? I watched Don't Worry, Darling somewhat recently, <laughs> which was so strange and... <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I liked it or not. It's definitely ambitious and definitely looks beautiful. Like it's really um, bright and like sun saturated, I guess. Um, and yeah, but it, the, I don't know. The story was just bizarre. <laughs> it's very bizarre. And Mia. I also watched Don't Worry Darling. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't going to talk about it. Um because I forgot I watched it. So I don't know if that's a good thing to say about it. But I actually enjoyed it. I mean, I went in with pretty low expectations because there's been so much gossip about the stars and the onset drama and everything. Um, but I thought it was pretty good. I didn't see the twist coming, um, I'll say. And yeah, I enjoyed it. And it was totally, it was beautiful. I mean, I love that like Palm Springs uh, mid-century style and stuff. So that was good. Um, the movie I was going to talk about though, is I watched Falling for Christmas today, which is uh, Lindsay Lohan's return to the screen. Um, nice. <laughs> it's on Netflix. Uh, run, don't walk to watch this holiday treat. She's an heiress, <laughs> a hotel heiress, and she's in a skiing accident and has amnesia. So it's sort of like an overboard kind of thing. Um, I mean, it's super predictable and terrible, but like I was making cookies and watching it and it's perfect for that. So. All right. So for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where we are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. And again, this time we are talking about Apocalypse Now. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about it going into this viewing? Who had seen it before, and if you hadn't, what were you expecting, if anything? And Alicia, of course, since you picked this one, can you please start us off and also remind us why you chose it? 
in all honesty, I'm not really sure why I chose it. <laughs> I think I just was like wanting to see something that was kind of familiar, even though I've never seen it before. But I obviously like it's so much in the like culture that it's it was it felt familiar. And I have seen Hearts of Darkness also. So, but it was a long time ago that I watched that. But um, and I'd never actually sat down and watched this movie. So I think I was just like kind of ready to do that and it was on the list and you know I don't know so that's that was why I went with it It's um, interesting that you watched the documentary about it before you watched the movie <laughs> mm. I think um, I was in like a, I I think one week I googled like the best documentaries or something <laughs> and that was on there and I just watched a bunch of them Okay, well, I'd be interested in hearing uh your your reaction to the movie in a little bit uh, after kind of knowing quite a bit about it perhaps from seeing the behind the scenes but uh mm -hmm. steven what about you i hadn't seen this movie before um it was one of those movies that i felt like you needed to be in the right headspace to see it um and it's also such a long movie that i feel like you need to give it your full attention and it and it's one of those movies like i've never seen schindler's list because i never did see it in the theaters and i felt like it felt a little strange to watch it at home um, so this was one of those movies for me. And if, if it wasn't for the podcast, I don't know if I necessarily would have even watched it now. Mm. Um, and I'm also really not into war movies per se. And I've just heard this one. You've heard so much about it. I don't know how it was going to live up to expectations at this point. So mm -hmm. um, I just decided I would uh, just walk into it without knowing anything. I still didn't know what the plot was or I knew the actors. I knew Martin Sheen was in it and I knew that um, Marlon Brando was in it and that he was overweight and he was bald. <laughs> but that's the only thing I knew about the movie, pretty much. And Lawrence Fishburne was in it, and he was super young. Yeah. Underage, in fact. Um, <laughs> did Did you know, Stephen, that it was based on Hearts of Darkness? And did that, uh, uh, like, how did you think of the movie going into it, if you did? I actually never read Hearts of Darkness, and I didn't know that that's what it was about. So I really okay. didn't know anything about this movie other than I think I was like three or four when it came out. And I just remember the ads for it, and it had Doors music in it, and it was creepy. Mm. Oh wow, you remember the ads. That's that's crazy. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm I'm super old, so like yeah, I remember. The ads. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Not what I meant to imply. Mia, how about you? Uh so I've seen this movie a few times before and but you know, even movies I've seen before, I always like watching them for the podcast cuz you feel like you're just paying attention to different things and watching it a bit, bit more critically. Uh, the first time I saw it, I will say I was on uh, – I did crew in high school, and so we'd, like, take buses to regattas. And I remember watching it on the bus, and which is, like, not the space to watch this kind of movie. Yeah, it was wow. on, like, you know, like a six-inch <laughs> screen. Wow. And yeah, there was terrible. always a big fight over, like, the boys choosing movies and the girls choosing movies. And this is obviously, <laughs> like, a boy movie. And I just remember it being, like, dark and war and – loud and just being kind of like what the heck is going on in this movie here um but yeah that was the first time um that i saw it all right yeah and i've <laughs> i've seen it several times uh, i guess the first time i watched it was probably that period in high school when i was like watching all the movies by all the directors and you know that sort of thing and that's also like i said when i watched the hearts of darkness documentary which i have not revisited um but then I saw I might have seen the original version again before this, but I, the next time I remember seeing the movie again was when Redux came out in theaters, like right before September 11th. I, for some reason, that's, they're just connected in my head that that was in theaters uh, uh, and I'd just seen it. And I think that's because 
the it was the United Artists Theater is what it was at the time uh, at Union Square was playing all their movies for free for everybody who lived under 14th Street in the days after September 11th because oh, wow. you couldn't go above 14th Street if you lived under 14th Street or or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were just letting people come watch movies. And I remember being like, oh, wow, I would not want to go see Apocalypse now after September 11th um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in that theater. But anyway, uh, I, I thought that the, the Redux was interesting. And then I definitely, I think the the most like intense experience I've had of watching it. Sorry, I have a lot of viewings of this movie. Uh, the most intense experience of me watching this was like one time I could not sleep when I was living by myself and I turned on the TV and it was like probably two or three in the morning and Apocalypse Now was on and I just started watching it and I felt like I was literally going insane as I watched the movie, which I think is what the movie is trying to obviously sort of replicate. Uh, And it worked pretty spectacularly in that sense, um, that time. Uh, And then Mia and I saw the final cut version at Tribeca Film Festival a few years ago. where that's like supposedly like it says the final cut that that Coppola is going to put together of the film like this is the way he thinks it should have been should be for here on out and you know people have debated I think when any of those has come out like which is the better one to watch so I don't know if we'll get into that in our discussion or not okay so that's where we stood on the film before watching it for this episode and we'll get more into the movie in just a moment but first, let's take a quick break. And we're back. So since this is the first regular episode we've recorded since the 2022 Sight and Sound list came out, I thought I'd start us off this time by reading from Sight and Sound's new entry for the film on their website. As always, the parts that may be more subjective aren't from me personally, but perhaps we can delve into those things as we get into our group discussion, and I'll be helped in this uh, about the film section this time. Uh, You'll hear them. (laughs) Transplanting the story of Joseph Conrad's colonial-era novel, Heart of Darkness to Vietnam, Francis Ford Coppola created a visually mesmerizing fantasia on the spectacle of war. Shy of controversy, Hollywood steered clear of tackling the war in Vietnam until the conflict was over. In the late 1970s, emboldened by the critical successes of his two Godfather films, Francis Ford Coppola famously spent a vast amount of time and money in the jungles of Southeast Asia to bring to life the story of an American officer, played by Martin Sheen, sent upriver to bring the wayward megalomaniac Colonel Kurtz, played by Marlon Brando, to ground. The troubled production, beset by a typhoon, a heart attack, Sheen's, and the perils of excess has entered filmmaking lore, but the resulting film rivals Stanley Kubrick's 2001 for its hallucinatory visuals and grandness of conception. Coppola defined its uniquely unhinged genius best with this quote, my film is not about Vietnam, it is Vietnam. And now some choice quotes from people who voted for Apocalypse Now in the 2022 polling. Adrian Wooten said, This raw, ragged Vietnam War epic remains Coppola's most ambitious and original work. It doesn't have the classical poise of The Godfather, but offers so much more in its impressionistic, wild ride, river road movie journey. 
a post-60s version of Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness. The set pieces, music, and performances are exemplary. This is haunting, ravishing cinema on a rare size and scale. Nico Marzano said, With innovative sound design by the three-time Oscar-winning genius Walter Murch, Apocalypse Now tells the story of a journey into the Cambodian jungle by U.S. Special Forces Captain Willard, played by Martin Sheen. His mental and physical mission to terminate the dangerously lawless Colonel Kurtz, who has set himself up as the god of a local tribe, soon becomes a process of self-discovery, ending with an outstanding, memorable performance by Marlon Brando. Mohamed Ruda said, This is a film about the hell of war and the lost meaning of glory through that journey into the abyss. It's about agony, misery, and the fall of concepts, principles, and ideals. All this is achieved with such visual and poetic power. Each sequence speaks volumes on the human, or rather inhuman, condition, through the main character and all who surround him. These sequences are not necessarily present to develop the story, but to give the audience samples and examples of what it's all about to be in hell. Again, that was all from Sight & Sound's website. Coppola's fellow New Hollywood slash movie brat filmmaker John Milius first conceived of adapting Heart of Darkness as a Vietnam War movie sometime in the late 60s. The original plan was for Milius to write, Coppola to produce, and for George Lucas to direct. Eventually, as Lucas became busy with other projects, Coppola became the project's director and co-writer. The film's shooting schedule in the Philippines was originally set for five months, but ended up taking more like 14 months. A lot of the reasons why are pretty well documented in the 1991 documentary, spearheaded and co-directed by Eleanor Coppola, Francis' wife. It's, as we've already alluded to in the episode, called Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, and is totally worth checking out, as we have also said. Reviews at the time were mixed, with some crowning it a high achievement from the start, while others praised the impressive craft of the filmmaking but found the storytelling wanting. Despite its mixed critical reception, it made good money at the box office and ended up winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It also won two Academy Awards for Best Cinematography and Best Sound and was nominated for another six. Those were for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Robert Duvall, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Film Editing. The big winner at the Oscars that year, though, was Kramer vs. Kramer. Meanwhile, Apocalypse Now did make it into the top five highest grossing films in North America for 1979, landing at number four, just ahead of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and just behind, from one to three, Kramer vs. Kramer, The Amityville Horror, Rocky II. In 1998, the film was included at number 29 in AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list, and it came in at number 30 on their 2007 version of the list. As for our purposes, Apocalypse Now has only been in the top 10 of one of Sight & Sound's polls once, when the director's list had it at number 6 in 2012. In the new 2022 polling, it was ranked at number 19 by critics and number 18 by directors. And Alicia, coming back to you, Uh, Since, again, this was your pick, can you start us off with your thoughts on the film and whether it met your expectations on this viewing? It definitely met my expectations, which were that it's a crazy Vietnam War (laughs) movie starring Martin Sheen and Marlon Brando. (laughs) Um, In terms of my thoughts on the film, they're pretty, um, like, scattered because it's a really dark ride. And I think, like... I knew that that was going to be the case and I knew it was going to be like an odyssey into, you know, the darkness of mankind and war and all of that. Um, 
but I don't know. I don't know what, what like how I expected it to go, <laughs> but it definitely like was even darker than I thought. Like that scene with uh, the scenes with Kilgore at, close to the beginning of the movie where I was already like, wow, this is dark. Um, and then it just like, I was like, how much darker can this go? <laughs> Cause this guy is just like killing people for fun or, you know, raising villages for sport or whatever it was they were doing. And then it just, yeah, it's got so much, um, darker than that. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. I, it's more, I mean, the performances were really good, really great. Um, you definitely feel like you're on, you know, you're with Willard on this journey and you're with him in this process of discovery that he's having. But I also hit a point where I was just like, at, at the end when he's like, everybody was ready for me to kill him. I was like, yes, I'm ready for you to do this. <laughs> like, do it. I don't want to see this anymore. Right. Like, it was it was not a fun watch. It was like a difficult well, even though it's like a very entertaining movie and Coppola is really good at entertainment and he's really good at like spectacle and I didn't feel bored. I, I wasn't bored of the movie. I wasn't ready for it to end because I was like, Ugh, get this over with. I was just ready for it to end because I was like, so I was just so tired of thinking about these, these dark things and seeing like destruction and death and mm -hmm. you've lost so many people by the time you get to this, the end of this, that you're just like, Yes, do it. Like, what are you waiting for? Do it. Someone dropped the head in your lap and you have the opportunity to kill that person. And it's not just a head of a stranger. It's a head of someone you have gone on this journey with from day one. Like, do it. End it. So those were my thoughts. Wow. <laughs> I think that was... Uh... Possibly your most intense reaction to one of the movies we've yeah, watched on mic. I, I mean, yeah. yeah, definitely. It was, it was a definitely an intense like experience, and yeah, I appreciate it for that. Um, but it was not easy. Right. So, Stephen, this was also your first time seeing the movie. Was your reaction as intense as Alicia's? What was it? <laughs> um, I ranged between being like super unsettled by this movie, like in every frame, I just was on edge. I couldn't look away though the entire time, and it was a very long movie since we did the Redux. It was uh, more than three three hours and change. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was also kind of taken out of it a lot of times just because the filmmaking itself was just so incredible. And I just was like, how did they even do this? You know, just watching right. just some of the, the bombing sequences and, you know, all the people that they had assembled at the different points and locations was just like, it, it was just such a technical achievement to me. It just like, sometimes I would be taken out of the movie because of those. Um, but overall, it was just like, it was so strongly acted and and I was just compelled to watch everybody on screen. And there there really wasn't a dull moment in the entire movie. And you were kind of, I always felt like I just really didn't know what was going to happen. And I guess that was the point. And uh, to Alicia's point also is just sort of like, you're on the journey with these people. And I was wondering if I was slowly going insane just by watching what was going on with each of the scenes mm -hmm. for people. And you're just like, you have to keep moving on. And, you know, you're seeing a 17 year old kid who's like in war and he's acting like this and shooting people. You just, you, it's, you're just going to get affected by it. So right. I, I just felt like I was affected just by seeing what they were doing every day. And you could just slowly seeing, you know, how, how war kind of works in a situation where you have too much time on your hands in one, one place, but then also, 
you know, people are dying around you all the time. And after a while, you're just sort of numb to it. And you just find, you know, things to do while you can to make yourself more sane or so you think so. So even those scenes of like them surfing during the bombs going off, it was just sort of like, well, that's sort of what happened when you were over there, I'm sure. So um, for me, yeah, I just was along for the ride. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was, I'm still thinking about it and I'm still processing it. And um, I feel like I need to watch it again. Um, and I'm game to watch it again. And some movies I haven't been, but this one, I, I think I want to, even though it was super unsettling. Right. Um, I'm going to bring me in in a second, but first I need to take the hit here. Uh, I screwed up when we were watching the movie. Um, I thought I had clicked on Apocalypse Now Redux and we got two hours into the movie and I was like, wait, where's the French plantation scene? (laughs) And we stopped it and realized I'd somehow it ended up with the original version, the theatrical version. Mm. So but we've both seen. Have you seen Redux, Mia? Yeah, we Previously? watched it together. Mm-hmm. No, we didn't watch that together. We well, I guess Final maybe cut. we didn't see Redux, but I remember the French Plantation because that must have been in yeah. the Final Cut. It was also in then. Final Cut, and yeah. it, it, like it basically. So just real quick, we we did choose Redux because, as we talked about in a previous episode, the time that this movie ended up in a top ten list was after Redux had come out. So we thought maybe that was the most appropriate version to watch for the podcast. Um, so. Apologies for us screwing that up or me screwing that up for us, I should say, me and Mia. Um, but we have seen Redux or Final Cut or both in the past. And we like b- the, the main difference is it has that long f- French plantation scene. Um, and then the ending, I think, has some uh, another scene to it, like when he's with Kurtz. Um, I think it's longer in Redux. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm wondering if I watched the wrong one because I don't remember a French plantation scene. You would remember oh, really? it. It's like half an hour. Oh my gosh, you would totally remember this. And I was Shoot. like, this is what they must have added. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. yeah. I swear to God, I clicked on to the 2001 version. Yeah, see, I did too. Uh, did you, where'd you click? Where'd you watch it? YouTube. Okay. I rented I watched it, it on, on HBO. No, we didn't watch it on HBO. We oh, watched no, it on Google. Uh, we we rented it from Google, and like I swear to God, when like I th- I thought that probably what happened, I looked it up and just watch the app, just watch. It tells you where what services you can watch it on, you know. And I searched for a Redux there and clicked on Redux, and I I'm convinced that some somehow like when I clicked the link to go to the movie in the service, it took me to the wrong one that there. Um, and I didn't notice and rented it and we watched two hours and we're like, what the fuck? Where's that scene? Yeah. I think I must've um, watched the wrong one too then because oh. I don't remember that. And I didn't know no, to yeah. be expecting it. Well, I watched it. <laughs> you Steven watched it. Me and I have us. seen it before. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, I will say too that, that, um, I, I think one of the things that was changed in final cut, which like, I think there's, there's a lot more like little changes in final cut, but he cut the French plantation scene back down some. He was like, ah, this might've been too much uh, in Redux. So he shortened it. And I, th- I thought that that worked in Final Cut. Uh, but I do think it brings something to the movie, having first seen um, the original version then seeing Redux. I thought that the French plantation scene did bring something important to the story. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's also hard to argue that it's not too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. I agree with that. I think it did bring something to it, but it's just the length of it. And, yeah, and yeah. The, it, they really took their time with that section of it. 
it almost mm. felt like it was a different movie at that point. And it kind of right. took me out of it a little bit. So, which I think is why it was cut originally and probably just yeah. for runtime, you know? Totally. Um, yeah. yeah. But anyway, sorry to de- derail us there. Uh, Mia, on this watch, what was your, what was your view of the movie? So on this watch, um, and maybe it's just because last time I watched it, I saw Final Cut, and that might have been the only time. I feel like whatever. Maybe one time I'd actually like sat down and watched it before that too. Um, I I enjoyed is not the right word, but like I was really into it for the first like five six of the movies. Five six <laughs> of the movie. I find the ending very anticlimactic actually, and maybe there's more in redux or final cut or whatever that got cut that from that wasn't in the original viewing that would make me feel differently but i'm kind of like he goes on this whole journey there's like all this crazy shit that happens like you're descending into the madness it's everyone's losing their minds like the guy has the camouflage faint face paint and the lsd and people are dying and they're being attacked left and right they come to this like insane temple complex with this whole tribe and everyone's painted and then Kurtz is like reading poetry and then he just like kills him and then he walks away and I was like okay like (laughs) I don't know it seems like they could have just like sent in a little bomb and like handled this without this whole thing here um and you know I'm I'm sure we'll get into it and I want to get into it of like did he did Kurtz just want to die at that point why does the tribe are they just like completely brainwashed so they see this guy who just killed their previous leader and you know they don't lay a hand on him and he's able to just walk out of there i i'm sure there's great symbolism behind it i read some stuff about the poetry that he was reading and that kurtz was reading aloud and how that ties into the novella hearts of darkness heart of darkness which i have not ever read um so i'm sure there's more there but just to me after being on like this whole journey it's just kind of like oh cool then he basically like walks up to him and kills him and then he like you know drifts away again and i was like okay cool so again enjoy the whole like not enjoy but like appreciate the movie, I mean, the filmmaking is incredible. I guess that's what you get when you can just like go to the Philippines and there's a dictatorship and you're just like, oh, here's a suitcase of money. Let us like shoot our movie however they want here. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Have fun. Um, the acting is obviously amazing. I haven't seen the documentary, but I would love to. And, you know, just hearing like the history of how the movie was made. Great, 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 great. But like, I don't know, couldn't they have just like made it a bit more at the end there? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, so mm-hmm. I think this is one of the great American movies. Um, and like, I, I think that the idea of adapting Heart of Darkness, because I, I, I'm, if I remember correctly, I read Heart of Darkness in high school pretty close to the time that I saw this movie for the first time. And I remember thinking, wow, these are so close together. Like it makes so much sense that someone would think to do this, that it's like so obvious. It's kind of brilliant. Um, and I, I just think it really works well. And I think that the added layer of, of heart of darkness being about an imperialist country, um, you know, doing their thing in a country that they're, uh, you know, colonizing or, or oppressing or whatever. Um, and, transposing that to the American conflict in Vietnam, 
uh, and American imperialism is like a real, um, it, it there's, there's just like a, um, there's something about that that just is genius to me. Like it, it's so simple. It's it, but effective, um, and adds this whole other layer of like, we're basically borrowing our imperialism from another country in a way, <laughs> the example of it. And like, is what happened? Like America learned to be an imperialist power from having been a part of an empire and seeing other empires exist and then trying to take up the, the oxygen that they left behind uh, when they collapsed, you know? So I, I think that it's just a, a, a really smart adaptation. Um, and yeah, the movie, like I think is designed to make you feel like you're going insane throughout, like you're in Willard's head as he's like losing himself in the idea of this man he's out to murder perhaps. And he's like, you know, it, it gets to the end where, he's not sure if he's going to do it or not. And um, I think the brilliant thing about the movie too is he, uh, Coppola does something that I think he also does in the Godfather where he somehow makes you relate to this, this crazy scenario, you know, like in, in the Godfather, he makes you feel for gangsters and like, he makes you, feel like you're a part of this family and you're rooting for the bad guys essentially. And in this, you're like right there with these guys and understanding the insanity that they're going through to some extent. I mean, obviously it's not war. It's not Vietnam, like Coppola said in his quote, but um, I think that this is about as close as you could get without having been there and gone through the craziness of that war or any war, but especially that war. So sorry, I'm talking way too much. Those are my, thoughts on the movie. <laughs> um, but um, just to open it back up, I wanted to come back around to what Alicia said before um, about Kilgore. I find that section of the movie like to be a dark comedy because um, it's just so absurd. Like, so I'm curious on your first viewing, if you were able to connect with it in that way, or was it just too over the top for you and just intense? Cause you, you talked about it being like, a sign of how dark this movie was going to go. Yeah. I mean, I definitely saw the comedic elements. Robert Duvall just plays it like perfectly. I mean, it's completely absurd. One second he's like arguing about giving someone water. And the next second he finds out there's a surfer there, a famous surfer. And he's like, Oh, just walks away, forgets about the guy that needed the water. So he wants to talk to the surfer. And yeah, I mean, it's completely it's definitely like comedic, but for me, like I still thought I still saw him, you know, burning villages, burning two villages to the ground. Mm -hmm. So, and the second one was mainly so he could surf that I was like, yeah, this is like pretty um, insane. And he's just like, so desensitized to everything that's going on around him and almost like, yeah, like I don't even I don't even know if it's almost, but just basically just like this is what I this is my job. Like I wake up in the morning, I get my coffee, I turn on the ride of the Valkyries and I go systematically murder people, you know, just like with helicopters, like no big whoop. And then I surf like that's my life. Yeah. It's just so bizarre. But but I do find it very dark, like it's it's very troubling. But I think you said that it probably does reflect a lot of things that happened in that conflict. And I, I mean, we've just heard so many things over the years about, 
war crimes and atrocities and things that didn't need to happen that did happen there. Um, so mm. I think if you're right, it probably is really refle reflective of that. But yeah, it was a little bit of a relief to like see Duval and have that kind of, because I will say it's like, it's a little bit thrilling too. You can kind of understand like why he seems to take some kind of pleasure in it, especially with the music when you have like this epic score as you're like, background to what you're doing and you're just like yeah like shoot them up and you seem like you're winning all your battle like yeah that probably is really seductive so yeah. i thought it was really well done but yeah, definitely as you're talking about it um I'm, I'm realizing that i think martin sheen gives some of the best reaction shots oh, in yes. probably film history in yeah. this movie because like definitely. i think that he you know he's our gateway into this whole scenario we're in his head and when we see him react to Robert Duvall, we know exactly what he's thinking. And we're like right there with him. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> um, There's a and, lot of eye acting in this movie. I noticed. Yeah. A lot of eye acting. <laughs> S Steven, um, what did you think of the, of the um, uh, scene with, with Robert Duvall? And it, it's funny that like, I didn't really feel like it was dark. It was dark in a, I guess it was darkly comedic to me, um, mm -hmm. but it did feel like it was like bringing colonialism there. You know, you're clearing out all this land just so you can surf. And I felt like he was trying to bring like his lifestyle or the way that America is into that since they were, they made some sort of mention of, um, I think it was like, he was trying to make it feel like home, but it made people miss home even more. Um, mm -hmm. So I felt like that was just kind of part of his whole deal was he wanted to try to bring America there. And he was kind of doing his job, like Alicia had said. Um, but I think overall, like it, it was just kind of a difficult watch in a way, just because people, people in war are just kind of, they just kind of adjust to their situations, but they try to make it like palatable to themselves in some way in that scene I really enjoyed when he's talking to Lance and he's like oh look and like you know one guy can go that way and the other and he's like oh my god like there's bombs like falling around us and it's just you know trying to stay alive and like actually be keyed into the things that's happening and you know it yeah I was just like oh my god wow they seemed and okay with it though which was weird don't you think like the guys they were like okay we'll just kind of do this I thought they were just like so shocked that they were just like, is this because they're Navy. So they're not usually like mm. out doing the army stuff. They're just usually like doing boat stuff. <laughs> so like, no, to, be on the, to be on the yacht, I think they were like, holy shit. And this guy is like a nutcase. And yeah. We just like, we just like raised a village and this guy wants to go surfing now. So I just thought it was like the only reaction mm -hmm. that Lance had when he mentions this to him, he's like, uh, I think we should wait till the tide comes in <laughs> like, to go surfing. <laughs> like, I just felt like he didn't know what else to say I at know. that point. He was just like, so like, holy shit, what the hell are we doing? What the hell is this guy talking about? Mm -hmm. I thought it and was And that's really your impressive. commanding, your commanding officer. Yeah. So like, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, okay, this guy's nuts. I don't want him to shoot me or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. it, also what you were saying, Stephen, about the colonialism, um, I read something that was saying that that beach is now like a big surfer beach, um, because of the movie <laughs> oh, being God. filmed there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I think like the the Duval scenes are like they're some of the most iconic scenes of the movie. So mm-hmm. it's easy to talk a lot about them. Um, but I, it is like a star walks onto set like that. He's playing a character who sees himself and acts as if he is a star in his own movie. And anybody who else is just like a a supporting character. And so they they I think that's why they all defer to him sort of and are like, this is insane. But I guess this is what we're doing now for for our time with this guy like they they're just like they run with it because he comes in and just takes over the entire scene and all of those scenes and it's like his fucking movie until he exits you know um they're just there to watch just like we are yeah alicia i was just gonna say yeah like when duval comes in you know you're you're in like good hands from like the Mm -hmm. minute he opens his mouth or whatever but also, like Willard does say, I guess his men felt safe with him, or they they felt like he took he takes care of them. And by the end of the movie, I was like, well, it's hard to argue with that. Like they did, they're there to do something, whether they like it or not. They have to do it. He gets it done. He has minimal casualties from what we see. Like obviously, he kills sure. a lot more Vietnamese people than American people die in in those right. scenes. So, like, I do think. If you're looking, if you're in a situation like that and you're looking to feel like you know what you're doing and you're there mm-hmm. for a reason and you have a mission to accomplish, that that's probably that probably is like a reassuring person's mm-hmm. team to be on. Not that I would want right. to be there, but that said, I, I noticed more, I think, on this viewing for some reason, or I'd just forgotten it, like how many crashed. I, I assume cavalry helicopters you see mm. after those scenes, like mm. uh, as they make their way up the river. And like, I don't know that those are any helicopters that were with him, but I, you got to assume that like the cavalry, this is like the vibe for not just them, but other units as well. Sure. Uh, I don't know. Did anyone else find themselves thinking like, Oh, well maybe like, maybe he's not as successful at this as he presents himself to be like, there's so many crashed helicopters. People do die. They're, they're not like invincible. I mean, helicopters crash in, in the actual attack too. Right. I think yeah, yeah. two mm-hmm. maybe. Well, or maybe one gets one blown up. Yeah. One gets blown up, or, or yeah, one gets blown up and one crashes. Yeah. Um, I yeah. was more when they showed like, I think it was a helicopter and a plane that were downed. I was more just like, again, like, how did they make this movie? This is insane. That like this exactly. is just like a set piece here. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I was more thinking about it that way than about the story. I think like you have to keep in mind too that like, and I think he says it at the, I maybe he says it at the end. I don't remember, but at some point, maybe I just read it. It's the way that the way that things ended up with us basically pulling out and not being successful in our mission there is because there was such a deep resistance and it was a guerrilla war mm-hmm. and the people mm-hmm. that were fighting on the ground for Vietnam, it was their territory. It was their, they knew what they were doing. They knew the lay of the land. They knew the jungles. Like you can shoot so many, you know, helicopter machine gun bullets, you know, into a thing from, from up above. But if the people on the ground don't want to give, don't want to give up and don't, you know, a similar thing to like what happened in Iraq, like, Mm-hmm. there's just people there that are not, they're fighting on a different level. And so I think that that was, that kind of illust- gets illustrated by the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. I, I can't remember exactly when he says it, but he says something in his voiceover, I think about how um, 
they don't take breaks. Like yeah. I, maybe it's maybe it's when they're the playmates are coming out and that whole scene is happening. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. that's when he says it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, but he says something about like we take breaks. We we like aren't as committed to this as they are, uh, which I think goes to the theme of the movie and Kurtz's whole mindset as well. So I don't know if we want to go ahead to Alicia's question already. Does anybody want to bring up anything else or we come back around to that stuff? To me, the darkest scene of the movie is when they're still on the boat and they pull over that other boat to Mm -hmm. search it and Mm -hmm. end up killing everyone on the boat and they find the puppy. Um, I mean, the surfing scene is also very, or not the surfing scene, but like that whole like raising the villages to surf. Obviously, it's very dark, but like there's enough comedy in it and to me, that is more of like, it's such a big scene, you know, it's like death from above, like their helicopter says, whereas this is just like, oh my God, these guys just got scared, right? And don't know what they're doing and just freak out and end up like shooting all these people for absolutely no reason. And it just, it reminded me of it when Jeremiah, Alicia, one of you said like, you know, he was like, oh, his men felt safe with him. And I'm like, yeah, I can see if your options are like be on this like dinky little boat with these like literal children who don't know what they're doing and are going to get scared at anything and just like start shooting or this commander who not saying that what he's doing is right or anything like that, obviously, but, you know, you you trust him, I guess, to like get you out of there. Um, but that to me and I I. I don't know like a ton about the history of the Vietnam War, but I'm sure things like that boat scene happened hundreds, thousands of times there. Did were villages raised for surfing? I don't know. Like were villages raised? Absolutely, of course. But you know what I'm saying? Like that to me felt like, oh, this is like more of like a real thing, like this like micro level war. So that to me right. made it more mm-hmm. intense. And I think too, it's this big turning point in Willard's character because he just goes and shoots the woman and he's like we need to get up the river like let's go whereas most of the time before that I feel like he's kind of like okay I'm along for the ride I'm staying in my little bubble I'm reading my files and you're kind of he's just more an observer yeah Uh, Mia you and I were talking recently about like violence in movies I think we were talking about Tarantino movies yes and I brought up like that Coppola has some sort of a quote I don't remember where I heard it or when, but like I, I think it was like in a documentary about movies or something. He said something about like violence in a movie is is not that interesting, but violence with eccentricity is what makes it cinematic. And I think that that's the thing is that like all the scenes with Robert Duvall's character, it's eccentric. They're incredibly violent, but but it's this eccentricity uh, about what they're doing and how they're doing it. That makes it a cinematic thing. And then the scene that you're talking about, Mia, where they just like kill all these people basically on accident. It's not eccentric. It's just a mistake. And it's closer to a reality. And that's why I think it is like the darker scene like you're describing. You know, it's just kind of portraying a thing that probably happened uh, in some form multiple times, like you were saying. Yeah, I feel like it gets... The, the more the movie goes on, the worse and worse things get. Yeah. And that was yeah. like a yeah. big example of it. It was a really difficult scene. 
I think we're also used to the mechanics of movies thinking like, oh, this is the first entry into what we're seeing. So we're more adept at thinking like, oh, it's it's sort of played for laughs or this is an eccentric character. But like you said, the more the movie goes on, the more maddening it really is. And it's more closer to, you know, what we're what we were thinking about war being at that mm-hmm. point, I think. Right. I also was like, what are you going to do with that dog, man? <laughs> like, I was so worried. He, kept it. Dog he had it for a while. He did. Until yeah. he loses it. Yeah, yeah. And wants to go back for it. I remember in the Hearts of Darkness movie, I think they had a snapshot of some young soldier and he had a dog like with him. So Mm -hmm. I think that might have been common. Well, um, do we want to come back around to Alicia's question? Yes. Alicia, do you want to ask that and then uh, hit up somebody you want to hear from first? Um, So my question was or questions or uh, were Kurtz's motivations clear to you at all in the end? Did you feel you understood what drove him or did you find an emptiness at the heart of this story? What, and what was your take on Willard's period of indecisiveness before he finally acted? And um, let's go with Steven. Tell me Um, your thoughts. (laughs) I think maybe his indecisiveness might've come from like, he kind of needed permission from uh, Kurtz to to kill him. Like, I I think that he would have, kind of turned like everybody else who kind of went up there. Cause I think he was very interested in the, that the, I think he had read some report from somebody else who had gone up there that decided like he was going to stay there. And he, he wrote those articles about like, you know, sell the wife, sell the kids. I mean, sell the kids, sell like the property. Cause he wasn't coming back. Um, so I felt like he was sort of on the fence about like even killing him just because he'd seen what he had done. And he knows the madness that have kind of come from being in that situation. So I felt like he kind of needed his permission in order to do it. And that's why he was able to be released at the end. And everybody sort of bowed down and let him and leave just because they kind of also knew in a way that it kind of needed to be over at that point. What about Kurtz? Did you, did you feel like you understood how he got to where he was and what he was trying to accomplish? Yeah, I, I guess when he he wrote that, um, when he was talking about how the commitment of the people that live there, like he wishes that he had had that kind of commitment. And if he had men like that, he could win the war. I think that's what he had mentioned in, in, in part mm-hmm. of part of one of the speeches that he had given. And I think that's probably what drove him to do that. Um, yeah, that's all I can think about with that. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think our understanding of Kurtz comes from Willard's view like we're in Willard's head hearing him think about the things he's reading and like you know hearing him quote things from the things he's reading and all and it's like like Stephen said it's his motivation was just that he saw the madness of the American approach of like we're gonna try to beat this foe that is more dug in more committed to this fight with these almost even though they're there full time in a way, like part time soldiers, part time um, war, like these people that are like are trying to have it where they can turn it off and go enjoy themselves and have a life like they don't want to be there. Like their troops don't want to be there, essentially, is what it comes down to. And he was trying to uh, wrongly, you know, build an army. He thought he thought the only way to win was to build an army that was as committed as the Viet Cong that he thought were undefeatable otherwise. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Is that what he was trying to do? Was he trying to build an army there? 
because I did not get army vibes from. I didn't know what he was trying to do. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, it was... well, I think he's trying to build a different kind of army because he was trying mm-hmm. to build like a guerrilla force that was like could just mm-hmm. go out and strike and like exist under the radar, which they were doing apparently because yeah, like they successful. disappeared into the woods and like they they had to send a fucking assassin up the river to find them. Mm-hmm. But were so. they like going on missions? Or were they just kind of being like, we're here in this little place and we're staying here? Well, I do remember when he was, they were talking initially, like with Harrison Ford and and the the general or whoever that was, and saying that like when they killed those three, I guess they thought they were double agents. They were being very successful. I thought they were successfully doing it. It was just when the the army or like the, the military didn't agree with what they were doing was then it became a problem. So I thought that they were actually very successful in what they were doing up there. Maybe I'm. Con- maybe I was confused about the timing. I thought that he didn't do that until after. I thought that he didn't go into Cambodia and set that all up until after he had already kind of done regular. Like he was on the regular doing things army track, and then he killed mm-hmm. some people that he didn't have permission to kill, and yeah. they were like, "Okay, we're coming after you." And then he was like, "Oh, he fled into Cambodia." But I guess it is a little blurry. I guess he could yeah. have taken all those people. I, no, I with think that's him. right, probably. Um, but but I think he still saw himself as building the force that, that like I, I guess I assume that he thought that eventually he would either convince his superiors that his way was the right way, or they'd have to send somebody to kill him. And <laughs> he got his answer. Like he 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 was building this force, hopefully to like reincorporate back in. And be the actual, like, you know, basically like this uh, force that could expand and like train the other people, I guess, was probably his thinking, which was Train insane. Americans? Yeah. I don't think so. Some. I don't think that's what he was thinking. Yeah, his force was like mixed Americans mm-hmm. and like Vietnamese or. Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess I didn't get the vibe that he was going to like be like dear american army i have this army now and i'm you just think we're saying he's gonna like keep taking in people who hear about him no i don't i mean that's the part that like i think is the disconnect like i think he thought he was building a force that could then be utilized by the american army um and if you really played out what his his um scenario was like, I don't think it was realistic. I think he knew it wasn't realistic. And that's why he knew that, like, he was just going to end up getting murdered. I don't know. I don't, I don't I think you're giving either. him too much credit. <laughs> yeah, I felt like he was just, like, crazy. Sorry, Mia. Go yeah. Ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I agree. I think it's like he, I, I agree with your beginning of it. I think he was, like, fed up with how the other generals were treating this war and was like we're never gonna win this like the north vietnamese are so much more organized and so much more dedicated to this in exactly the same way like america does not win guerrilla wars because we have people you have to pay to be there and Mm -hmm. other you know local people are fighting because they actually believe in this and so i think he was like we're never gonna win this here i know how we can do this though and i'm gonna start like doing these little like strike forces or whatever but i don't know i guess to me i thought that then once he was up there in cambodia in the jungle that just like the not that he was necessarily like actually insane but just like the madness of everything had gotten to him and so now he's just like 
I'm going to behead people or I'm going to keep people in cages. And there's this tribe here who thinks I'm a god. And they're, I, I guess I felt like they were more just going about their lives living there, but also like worshiping him as a god, but not really planning on like going and fighting anybody. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know. I, I'm not sure I agree with, with that, that that's all that's happening. I, I think that he is still trying to fight a war. He just, he doesn't believe in the approach of the Americans and he's trying to build a new way. It's not, I'm not saying he's successful in that. I think he knows in the end that he's not successful yeah. and that he, he knows that's why they've sent someone. If they can get to him, he's lost, you know, and they do get to him. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, and I, I think, I don't remember who said it before. Maybe it was Steven. I think he is basically in the end um, giving Willard permission to kill him. And, and that's why he ultimately does kill him is that he's, he was kind of waiting for that. Cause he's just kind of seeing how this is going to play out. Cause he's like intrigued by this guy, maybe believes in him. I don't think he's quite decided if he, if he believes in him. So it's almost a relief when the guy's just like, fucking kill me, just do it. Let's get this over with. And he's kind of released from like that push and pull going on in himself of like trying to figure out if he wants to kill him or not. He doesn't have to decide anymore. It's decided for him, you know? Sorry, I kind of switched the track of what I was well, answering here, there. But. Here's the other thing I was confused by, because Willard's reading all his files going up the river. And, okay, Kurtz is on this track. He's like, you know, West Point and this and that and all this stuff. And then at some point, really late in his career, he switches to being in the Green Berets, right? And mm-hmm. so now he's going through all that, and he's like, why? Why would he have done this? Why? I guess I thought that was going to be answered at some point. And it was, and but yeah, I just it was still <laughs> left like, okay, why? I don't understand. Well, I thought that was I thought it was what Stephen and I were saying that like he he made that career change after he'd witnessed the inadequacy of the American fighting forces in Vietnam, and he and he knew that the only way to beat them was to to become guerrillas uh, ourselves themselves or ourselves or whatever you want to say. And so that was his approach was to try to turn himself into that. I don't think he'd already been to Vietnam. Yeah, he had definitely had. When he became special forces. Yeah, he, he, he'd been, they, they, I remember them saying it. he'd already been in Vietnam and had like seen what was going on. He went back and briefed LBJ Mm -hmm. and the chiefs of staff or whoever, and told them what he thought they disagreed with them. And that's when he, decided to like basically drop out of his career track when he realized he was up against a bunch of what he considered to be idiots and changed to, to special forces, green berets. Yeah. Because they did make a point of saying like they were grooming him obviously for a higher position within the military, but he was just Mm -hmm. like, this is just not working. And plus he was 38 when he started, when you're in special forces, I think that uh, Martin Sheen's character was saying like, I was 22, like doing some of that training and I 19, 19, he could barely get through it. Yeah. Yeah. I remembered that. Um, I just, I just kind of was, I guess I didn't make the connection that he was trying to, build a better way of doing things i kind of thought he just was like oh well the army thinks i the army doesn't like my tactics and they're coming after me and i'm gonna go somewhere where i can set myself up as like a person that's difficult to reach i'm gonna i'm gonna start a i'm gonna get like a following i'm gonna be 
Yeah, I, I'm not saying you're wrong that that's what it became, but I think the intention was that he wanted to basically build an army that could actually beat the enemy that he was charged with beating. Okay. And he knew he was never going to be able to do that with the resources he was given, meaning like the people and who who were trained a certain way. He was like basically creating his own way of doing things. Also, like if you know? you're, if... and maybe he, that's and that drove him insane eventually, I guess, because yeah. like there was this push and pull of like I'm betraying my country, but winning the war in my own way uh, but they're telling me i'm wrong to do that you know i do feel though like if you you have the opportunity if you go if you stay on the track to become a general <laughs> you have the opportunity to then remake the way the war is being waged so i don't understand necessarily i mean i'm sure there would be tons of resistance and you might not be yeah. successful in that but like i don't know I, is it more effective to just like do what he did or would it have been more effective to like stay in that career track and like try to change minds at a top level? I I guess my pushback on that would be two things that uh, just trying to think of like what this character would think of it as, you know, like I I think that he would, he would say that that would take too long. The, the, this war is happening now. And by the time I'm going to be a general who can like change the policies of anything, if that's even possible, um, it's too late. We're going to lose this war. And second, I, th- I think probably someone who has the mindset that he exhibits, uh, in this movie would think that if, if I'm going to become a general, that's going to change me. I'm not going to change them. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's going to, he's going to be accepting their way of doing things to become a general. Like he can't do that. He, he's beyond that point. Okay. What about um That's my take. What about Martin Sheen's characters just like chilling there for a couple of weeks before it does anything? He likes the poetry. <laughs> Wait, can I say one more thing? Because I was just looking at yeah. Colonel Curse's uh fictional character biography on Wikipedia to try and fill in some of these blanks. And it says <laughs> that at first the army is basically like, okay, cool, like this guy, you know, we don't love what this guy's mm-hmm. doing, but whatever, which mm-hmm. yes, agree with that. But then it says this soon changed when Kurtz allowed photographs of his atrocities to be released to the world. And I don't remember oh. that, at least in the version that we saw. Because I think that was another hole for me was – and Martin Sheen's character even says this where he's like, people murder people here all the time. Who cares? Why do they suddenly care about him? Which I guess was also something for me like – I mean, yes, like this – maybe existential threat to like the American military project of having this rogue general dude out the rogue army dude out there. Like I get that, but why this rogue army dude, you know, like you have this other guy flying helicopters to raise villages so he can surf, but this is the guy you're worried about who killed like three people who sounds like probably well, were think- double agents based on what happened after he killed them or what didn't happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you're getting to why Willard is so conflicted. Sure. He's like, yes, the, the, the line, the thin line between what is considered sane and insane is almost negligible. Yeah. And it, and it all just depends on the viewpoint of who's making the decision, I think. And that's why he's like kind of confused by his orders throughout the whole thing, trying to figure out like, why do they want me to kill this guy? he's basically doing what they want him to do. Um, but I, and I don't remember specifically like them saying the thing that you just said about like him releasing photos. I do remember, I think that he'd sent a letter to his son or tried to send a letter that they 
that they intercepted that was like basically espousing these views and telling of what had happened or something. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's extrapolated from that. I don't remember. I, know. But I mean, I I'm also reading you have something, something to say from Wikipedia, so it could be incorrect. Um, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, there was, I don't know where they're getting that from. Yeah. But. There was just, a, I mean, maybe that was something that was like, didn't actually make it in the movie, but like Francis Ford Coppola has spoken about or something like that. I don't know. Um, yeah. There was just a few things like that, that made it like gaps for me. I get it with Willard for sure, but in terms of understanding Kurtz's like motivations and all of that made it hard for me to exactly track that. And maybe part of that is just like, he's insane. You're kind of insane by the end of this movie. Like it doesn't all need to fit together perfectly. Um, and it won't, but well, maybe the other thing that differentiates Kurtz from, I'm forgetting, uh, Duvall's character's name, Kilgore. Kilgore. Um, yeah, maybe the line between Kilgore and Kurtz is that Kilgore doesn't actually seem to care about winning the war. He cares about like the thing in front of him. He's like small potatoes, really, when you get down to it. He's like, I want to clear this beach because there's a mission that I need to clear it for or because I just want to fucking surf. He's not like out there to win the war. Uh, whereas Kurtz is like, no, if we want to actually end this thing, like we need to think beyond what we the way we're doing this now. And I'm not like saying I agree with that or anything, but... You know, I, I think that that's the difference too. Um, Stephen, what do you think? I'm not sure, honestly. Okay, that's that's fine too. I mean, I think yeah. that that's the thing. This movie like asks questions and it's not answering them for you, which I think is always a tricky thing. But when well done, is like sometimes the best kind of movie. That's my opinion. Was there a point where anybody thought like maybe he doesn't kill this guy? <laughs> first time he saw I thought it. he was going to be killed honestly but when he mm-hmm. wasn't that's what was kind of more of a surprise to me that he kept him around so mm-hmm. yeah I found that surprising too that that I mean I guess I understand why Kurtz kept Willard alive because in the end he wanted someone to tell his story or whatever um but yeah I didn't really I didn't necessarily understand why Willard was I guess so somewhat taken and obviously in the end he does what he was sent there to do and I guess he I guess he kind of does it on his own terms by waiting and trying to understand the situation better but I was also just like what are you doing (laughs) I don't know I think I already said at the beginning so I was just kind of like wondering what you guys thought about Willard as well like why he hesitate why he just like didn't do it as quickly as he could I was like, just kind of afraid, honestly, like (laughs) when I saw him approach, just seeing what kind of power he had. So I didn't know if he could immediately like stab him or shoot him or call in the airstrike as soon as he got there. Um. Yeah, I know. I know that then there's that period where he's like there, he's not being held captive at a certain point. He's just like Mm -hmm. there of his own volition. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) He seemed a little broken. Maybe it goes back to the permission thing of like, in a way, you could argue that the only way for him to accomplish his mission was to wait it out and get that permission to kill him so that he could then make it out of there. Because I I do think there's something to what somebody said before of like, the way he gets out of there safely is because basically everyone senses that this was what Kurtz wanted. So that's why they don't 
tear him apart limb from limb as he's leaving, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe he's just biding his time until he knows he has that permission so he can make his way out of the camp and not get killed by these people. I don't know. And that's his way, like I said, of accomplishing his mission and getting back to base to report on it. Um, But I do think there's a curiosity for him. He's like, I don't understand why these people want him killed. Like he, they should be in a way embracing this because he is insane, but this whole fucking war is insane. Like they made him this way. Uh, So that's, he doesn't get that. Like you're supposed to have a disconnect. You're supposed to have some sort of like um, ability to sort of just ignore the craziness of everything and have limits, you know? I thought with him leaving at the end unharmed was like these people have been viewing Kurtz as this god and here's clearly this man who slayed the god so he must be even more powerful. And so when he throws down his sword or spear or whatever he has and like they all drop their weapons too, I thought it was just like he is our new god so whatever he does, whatever he does, we're going to do too. Well, I'll just say I thought the same thing. I thought that the reason that they – um, sort of bowed down to him at the end was because he was the person that killed their like chief or their warlord or whatever their god they viewed him as that they were like oh like so you're the one that comes now you're the next one mm-hmm. and then yeah if he had maybe raised his machete or whatever it was and been like <laughs> you know full speed ahead they would have done whatever he said but since he dropped it and then you know they they all also dropped it and let him go but maybe they did need that time of like waiting to see if Kurtz was going to put up a fight or what exactly was going to happen. But I found it a little bit confusing. I was also confused by the whole thing of like, why didn't they just do an airstrike? Because there was clearly an airstrike ready to go if he had given them the code. So why didn't they just do that? I know. I guess I assume that was because it's Cambodia and they didn't want to have to do an airstrike if they didn't have to. Yeah, but then when you don't you hear know? from someone for like, he was there for like two weeks or something, wasn't he? I, I, I guess I wasn't him. sure how long he was yeah. there. Oh, okay. A couple of days at least. Well, the other guy ended up like kind of joining the tribe, so it had to have been yeah. at least a few days. Yeah, I thought it was like a week I mean, he was two. ready to lo- to join a tribe anyway. Lance, oh, yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe they needed proof of like life and existence or whatever before they did the airstrike. And then he was going to wait to see yeah. if he could actually do the mission before they decided to do it instead of just killing everybody. Well, I wasn't sure too. Did he call in the airstrike? I think or did he, he get killed before that? that? I think he got killed before he was able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I assume they knew that Kurtz is and like his minions knew that there was someone still on the boat and just like figured this is what he was going to do. And they were like, "Mm -mm." so I just assumed they never even called in one. Yeah, but but to Alicia's point, I think it was of why didn't they just do it eventually anyway when they didn't hear from anybody? I I mean, I think that they wanted to make sure he's there. They don't want to be just like bombing a place Mm -hmm. where he might have already left or something and killing a bunch of people who are to some degree innocent, perhaps. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, and did they know that? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they knew exactly where he was, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that, too. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't sure how visible where they were would be, like, from the air. And, yeah, like, is Kurtz actually there? Blah, blah, blah. Right. Then it wouldn't be a um, good movie, Alicia. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I know that. But I did feel like by the end of it, I was like, 
okay like they somebody sent you some sort of transmission like he was he did talk to someone for a minute Mm -hmm. so like let them know he was there and kind of like where they were or something he didn't actually order the strike but like they knew he was there and then they didn't hear from him for like whoever knows how long it was at least probably at least a week yeah, I mean, I, I I think all indications are that the people who were sending Willard after Kurtz, not necessarily the most backbone, you know. Yes. <laughs> so I think they they wanted all the the T's crossed and the I's dotted to to know that they were right in calling it an airstrike. You know, yeah. that that's my take on it. Was there ever a moment where you thought like, okay, Willard is gonna? Um... <laughs> run this tribe now that Kurtz is gone. <laughs> I did when he sat down at the desk and started typing. I don't know if he starts typing actually, but he like sits down at the desk and kind of like pulls up to the chair with the typewriter. And I was like, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Is this how this ends here now? I'd be interested in knowing what Steven thought. Cause I've seen this movie so many times. I can't tell you like what I originally thought. I don't remember, you know, and now I know how it ends, so it's hard to say. I'm not really sure, just because, like, at the beginning of the movie, you know, obviously he's had some sort of break, and he's just, like, not uncertain of a lot of things in his direction. So I felt like maybe at the end he'd finally found his direction, and he did say that he would follow that, he would follow um, Kurtz, like, just by just reading about what he had done. So he, it's it was a possibility for me to think about that, because I, I did think, like, well, maybe now that they've all bowed down to him, he's going to be this is where I belong and decide he wants to continue with what, you know, carry out whatever Kurtz's plans were. So I actually wasn't sure, like it could have gone either way, but I didn't think it was going to end the way that it did. Honestly, I didn't think he was just going to leave. And then that was going to be kind of the end of the movie. Yeah. I I guess I think Willard is a follower. Like he's a tool. Like I I don't mean a tool, like what a dweeb or something. I mean, he he's a literal tool of the powers that be like, he needs somebody to give him a mission. Like that's like at the start of the movie, he basically is in stasis and is just like waiting for a mission to be handed to him. He has like no agency of his own almost in a way. So like, I, I do think it's interesting hearing his thoughts in his head, but like he has a master that he's not going to give up fully either. Like the, the powers that sent him there to kill Kurtz. Like, I think the fact that he flirts, with maybe having this other master is interesting, but like I, I do think it makes sense that he's never going to fully give into it. He's going to try to carry out the mission. I think like I, I don't, I, I, I think it. I don't remember what I thought the first time. Like I said, but like I think it makes sense dramatically um, that he doesn't really waver in the end. Oh, you mean with his mission and not with, yeah. with flirting with the idea of being in charge of that new tribe or the... I think that that wouldn't make sense to me for him to do that after going through this like two and a half to three hours with him otherwise. Like he doesn't seem like a guy who's going to like go out on his own and do something. He's looking for something to follow, you know? I could have seen it like happening. <laughs> I think you're right. It does like make sense the way that it... And, and I was really re- like relieved by the fact that in the end he dropped the sword and just got on the boat and left, grabbed the grabbed Lance and was like, Lance. Lance came <laughs> with down, him too. Put That's down the thing. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. 
poorly. I was more shocked at that. I was like, Lance is going to be like, no, I'm just going to stay in the jungle. Yeah. So. I wasn't sure what where that guy was going to come down on things. That whole thing with they were killing the buffalo, I was just like, oh, my God, I hope they didn't kill a real yeah. animal for the. Oh, they definitely did. Yeah. They did. The American yeah. Humane Society was not pleased, but they're like, we're in the Philippines. We can do whatever we want. So. Mm-hmm. Suppressing. Yeah. Mm. Well, and I had a question about that. Just the, you know, the sacrificial water buffalo is being killed right at the same time that Kurtz is being killed. I'm assuming we're supposed to think of him as sacrificial, I guess sacrificial to mm-hmm. like the generals, the war effort overall needing to be driven forward in one way. I don't know if anyone else had any thoughts about that. Just a sacrifice yeah, to I mean, I think that's it. American imperialism, <laughs> <laughs> the American imperial anti-communist yeah. cause. What they call it? The domino yeah. theory. Yeah. LOL. Yeah, I thought the symbolism was pretty clear. <laughs> I don't know. In fact, that's like one of the moments where I'm like, it's it it makes a lot of sense, but it it's kind of a little too on the nose. Yeah, maybe I agreed with that. Yeah, I just was like, that was not necessary to intercut it with what was really happening. Yeah. So those are our thoughts on Apocalypse Now, and we will share our final thoughts on the movie and answer our bonus question after this break. back so what was your favorite scene or moments or some element of this movie alicia let's start with you yeah i think probably it was robert duvall i mean i would like enjoy the i'd enjoy kilgore you know as, as a person but i thought that was like definitely the most um entertaining uh part of the film and the most light-hearted if you will part of the film even though like and I also thought I did I do think it did set up a lot of a sense of like foreboding there's a lot of like music cues that are a little bit like dark and menacing during that section even though there's like a comic overtone there's like also like this like dark forbidding undertone that's happening and um I thought it was really effective Mia I think that this is the best use of the doors music in any movie and it's just perfect like it's so atmospheric and obviously of like that era and i love that and then obviously too like the ride of the valkyries when the helicopters are going in but yeah the the sound overall in this movie is incredible but bonus points for the soundtrack steven I feel like they use a lot of like the Doors music like ap- after that movie came out in a lot of war movies and a lot of war like television shows and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind yeah. of paired with that so much now. Um, it's hard to say there were so many moments in this movie that I really like, but one um, we didn't really talk about that I really en- enjoyed just seeing how it played out was when the Playmates came and um, they had that. Um, I don't know what it was. It was just sort of like a meet and greet. I don't even know what that I didn't really know what I was watching, but it just, you know, it just played into all of the just insane things that were happening during that war. And it was supposed to be sort of downtime, but at the same time, it was super menacing. Um, And then later on when they revisit them and they're, you know, they ran out of fuel and they, you know, traded fuel for 
an hour with the women. And just that whole scene was just upsetting to me, but I just couldn't look away. It was, it was pretty intense. Right. We didn't see that scene actually, uh, this time, oh. the second scene, cause it's not in the original cut. That actually worked um, for me. I, I, I yeah. thought it was, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say that's that, uh, bridge scene, the insane br- <laughs> bridge, like, which is, uh, I think that that one is the one that hits me the most these days. Like after seeing the movie several times, anytime that comes up, I'm like, Oh my God, this movie's nuts. And like that, the, as that scene plays out and that guy who just like knows where to fire his mortar to, to kill the guy that's screaming in the background and stuff. It's just like, everything about that scene is just, none of it makes sense. Um, but somehow it just makes total sense in this movie. Like, I don't know how it's like, there's something about war. Anytime you see a war movie or TV show or anything where there's this like element of organization that I'm like, how do they do this? You know, like this guy shows up to get to deliver a letter out of nowhere. Like he's been there for three days in this hell hole like just trying to stay alive, I guess, to pass on this letter so he can leave and get the fuck out of there and, and keep living his life, I guess. Um, but it's just like this absurdity that that guy is there. And then like nobody knows who's in command because nobody's in command. Um, and then the guy with the mortar. It's just like, that seems nuts. Um, and I think it's maybe the key to the movie for me at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, so has the movie, as far as you're concerned, stood the test of time or another way of framing it? Do you think it resonates today? Uh, Alicia? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not pleasant, but I definitely think it still resonates. And obviously, like, we still meddle in things we don't need to be meddling in. And, you know, sometimes you think you understand the reason why we're doing things. And then you've been lied to. And it's very... Uh, unsettling and um you know it's definitely I don't know how it what how it is now I think it's very different now but I would say like probably when our parents generation was growing up and also to some extent when we were growing up because the cold war was kind of still happening then um there was a very like you're kind of taught like our way of doing things is the better way of doing things and we stand for these like wonderful ideals that like communists don't uh, understand. They don't have freedom. They don't, they can't, they have to stand in line to buy toilet paper or whatever. And then when you get a little older and you (laughs) see what's really going on, it's very um, disillusioning. And I think that, I think that there's a ton of disillusionment um, in this country nowadays. And so I think the movie definitely, uh, still resonates and definitely i mean just like it's a great really well-made movie that so definitely stands the test of time in that regard steven yeah in terms of um movie making in and of itself it's just incredible so i think it does um it does stand the test of time in that respect um just in terms of movie making just the war machine in and of itself is is probably very similar to how it is i i, I feel like things have changed and especially with the advent of like being able to kind of you know, we see more things on the internet or there's more reporting just done in those situations where you do get to see what's kind of going on. Um, but I, I still feel like there's still is young people going over there. There's still, sometimes they have too much time on their hands and they're, they're not really sure what's going on and they, they can definitely go mad <laughs> or, or, or they're just like not sure of the mission. So they 
continue on with what they're doing, even though they don't agree with it. So I feel like there is still parallels to today with that movie. Um, and aside from that, I, I feel like the movie is timeless in a way, like even though the movie is how old is it? Like 40 years old. Um, it, it still feels like it could have been made maybe even yesterday aside from, you know, just some of the technology, but it, it seems like it's, it's kind of timeless in that way. Mm-hmm. Mia. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's an incredible movie and obviously I think still resonates today, you know, just from a geopolitical stance, you know, we've been in the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, like clearly we don't learn. So even if you're just viewing it from that, like one perspective, I think it still resonates. Ra rah, rah, America. Didn't see that part coming, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm going to go back to um, the, the sight and sound page for this movie. Now it has several quotes. We read three of them, or y'all read three of them at the top of the show. But one of them that we didn't read, um, I think it's at it for me. Uh, Coppola is one of the greatest film artists, and I could submit a top five of all time list composed solely of his films. I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but I definitely think he has at least three movies that are in the conversation of the greatest films of all time, but especially the greatest American films of all time. I think there are certain movies that just encapsulate the spirit of America, at least at a time, if not just in perpetuity. And unfortunately, I think Apocalypse Now is one of those films because I really wish that this wasn't what America is, but it is. Like we are a country that is insane and does insane things and um, it's not good. We shouldn't be doing these things. Um, and I think this this movie kind of really gets at that um, in a profound way. And I think it definitely, for the reasons y'all are laying out, still resonates today, unfortunately. But it's incredibly well made. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a big movie. Um, but it's worth, worth your time if you haven't seen it. And if, at this point, we've spoiled it for you if you've listened to all of this. So you might as well just watch it and see it for yourself, though. Um, I guess that brings us to our bonus question, which is uh, pretty straightforward and very connected to this movie. Um, what is your favorite war movie? Uh, Steven, do you want to start us off on this? I'm going to go out of the box and say Starship Troopers, um, just because Ooh. it is a science fiction type movie, but yet it still has kind of parallels to World War II or any kind of war movie, kind mm-hmm. of just on how people are recruited and how propaganda works. Um, and it's it's pretty effective. And it's one of those movies you watch once and you're like, huh? But then you watch it multiple times and you get much more out of it. Um, you kind of understand it's kind of a parody of war movies, but at the same time, there's more truth to it than you think. Yeah. Um, so I hate most war movies. I can never tell like who's who in them or what's going on. Like I saw Dunkirk in theaters and just wanted to like cry the whole time because I thought it was so bad. So when I saw this question, I was like, no, Stephen, oh my God. Um, but luckily I've seen Jojo Rabbit, which I think is so good, so funny, and so touching, and so unique, and such a great movie, and also a war movie. So Jojo Rabbit is my answer. And Alicia? Uh, I also had Jojo Rabbit in mind when I was trying to think of this, because I also 
uh, have a similar take on war movies. I mean, I can watch, like I've seen Saving Private Ryan or, you know, whatever, but like, I don't ever find like any really deep emotional connection to that type of thing. I just kind of find it a little bit like confusing and jarring and, you know, like I get the whole thing of reflecting what war is, but I don't enjoy watching it. But like, I would also say like, I guess my other choice was Inglorious Bastards. I think that's a good, really good war movie. It's a little over the top at the end, <laughs> but it's it's entertaining. Uh, I'm going to go with Paths of Glory uh, by Stanley Kubrick, which came out in 1957. Uh, I think that it uh, just really gets, I mean, most, I think most good war movies are, are anti-war movies. There's very few movies that are pro-war, but there are a few of them. Um, and I think that as far as the anti-war message goes, you don't get much better than Paths of Glory. It just, uh, I don't want to give it away, but just look it up if, you, if you're unfamiliar with it. Uh, it's really good. And we also got a few answers from our Facebook group. Charlie offered up the Burmese harp and said, I'll make the bold statement that filmmakers from the United States make terrible war films that fetishize violence or push the concept of redemptive violence, even and sometimes especially the anti-war films. Blah. So not a fan of American war films, and I, I can understand that, I think. And Benji said Gods and Generals and Saving Private Ryan, and he agrees that best war movies are anti-war. Um, yeah. And Jonathan offered up a very long engagement, which is a movie that I remember liking a lot, but don't remember much of now. So our next episode is actually my pick. Uh, it's my second for round five, and it's my nomination of a recent film that I think might deserve inclusion on the list. And that is Boyhood, which is directed by Richard Linklater. It was released in 2014, and it is available with a subscription on the Criterion channel and Canopy, or you can rent it via Apple, Amazon, Google, and several others. Okay, well, that's it for this episode of Stereo Actor Movie Club. You can subscribe to the show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. We invite you to join our conversations about movies by joining our Facebook group, and you can find a link to that along with our email address, links to a lot of the places where you can find the show and other info by going to stereoactivemedia.com slash Club. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. It helps others to find the show, and we really appreciate it. Also, you can get updates about this show and plenty of other stuff by following Stereoactive Media on Instagram or Twitter. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.